Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm not just writing history, I am making it. I have the brain of a historian and the clapback of a comedian. You better come with sources because I always check footnotes. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Historians on Housewives. You're here with me, Casey. You're here with Dr. J. Mill, the millionaires. Max Spear, two cents to my name. <laughs> well, today um, it's going to be a little different because typically Jessica would be one of our co-hosts, but instead today she is actually our guest, our, our talent for the day, if you will. So I'm actually going to read her bio. So Dr. Jessica Millward is an associate professor in the Department of History at UC Irvine. In the 2018-2019 year, she was the Mellon Fellow in African American History at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Her first book, Finding Charity Spoke, Enslaved and Free Black Women in Maryland, was published as part of the Race in the Atlantic World series um, for the University of Georgia Press in 2015. She is currently working on a book-length project that discusses African-American women's experiences with sexual assault and intimate partner violence in the late 19th century. And in 2010, uh, Jessica helped to found the UC Irvine Ghana Project, which was a dance and artistic exchange between the UC and the University of Ghana Lagan and the Ghana Dance Ensemble there. She is also one of of course, one of our Historians on Housewives hosts. She is primarily a scholar of slavery and routes to freedom, particularly as it relates to African-American and black women's history. And because that can be a heavy conversation, she has lots of smaller projects, which she'll talk to us about on the podcast too today. So we're actually going to hear about Dr. J. Mills' um, recent vacation to Ghana, but the other trips that she's taken there. And we're going to put that in dialogue with the Atlanta women and various other moments in the Bravo archive today. So with that, hey, Jessica. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. It's so nice when we get to talk to our special guests in person. Yes, I was a little nervous being on this side of the table. I'm in the same exact space. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Uh, so would you like to share your housewife's tagline to get going? And this is not the same as our intro because you made a special one for the content of today's episode. I did make a special one and it goes something like this. I feel like we needed a ba dum bum. Travel to Ghana for the year of return. My soul never left. So Jessica, we've chatted a lot in the past about how you got into Bravo and the Real Housewives, um, especially on our pilot episode. But I was wondering if you would indulge us a bit more with your own personal history with reality television before and since the Housewives. Oh, I mean, I've been dying to have this opportunity to talk about <laughs> my love of reality television as if a podcast wasn't enough. Maybe you could also share about your TMZ experiences. <gasps> So if you watch the Kardashians, there was this episode where Oprah actually interviewed the Kardashian family. I guess it was an Oprah episode. And Oprah was talking about the Kardashians being the best new thing on reality television. And Bruce Jenner, who was Bruce Jenner at that point, who always likes the, the spotlight, went ahead and said, well, actually, Oprah, I was on one of the first reality shows. I was on Battle of the Network Stars. And this was a, it was a show where network stars would do a lot of games and, you know, like um, daredevil kind of games. And I'm embarrassed to say that I remember this show, and that is exactly what I remember. As a historian, I've always been interested in, um, like, how things put, are put together, how people put things together. And reality TV is great because you can see the script in front of you. And then you can go to the Twitters and see what other people are saying. And then you can go to the news blogs. So if I were to say that I was a reality uh, television buff since Bruce Jenner was Bruce Jenner in the um, Battle of the Network Stars, that would be it. More recently, when I came to Orange County, um, I started watching the Orange County Housewives. And from there, the franchise just kind of hooked my attention. But there's, almost, there's probably not a... There's very few reality shows I have not watched. And anything I'm missing, ironically, Max watches, so then I have, <laughs> to, I have to watch it. And how many times have you contributed to TMZ? Well, my experience with TMZ is fourfold. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I've been on four times on TMZ Live, and um, for the most part, they're very, um, I pick the storylines that are more relevant to historians so I can justify the fact that oh my god I'm on TMZ live <laughs> the first was looking at um, Chappaquiddick the second one was looking at um, sexual harassment uh, Matt Lauer and Ann Curry and how they kind of had a breakup on NBC because Ann Curry did what she was supposed to do and reported Matt and then the third one was um, looking at the royal wedding between Meghan and Harry the fourth one didn't come 
to fruition, and it's very important I tell you why. I was all set to talk about, I believe I was set to talk about Kanye and his slavery comments. Oh. Yep. I was set. I mean, Van was on the screen. Van is the gentleman who, of course, is no longer at TMZ, but he is the one that ran interference with Kanye. So I was ready to have this conversation. And right in that moment, Penny Marshall passed away. So Harvey got off the off the set. He made phone calls. They're, they're, they've got themselves together. They ran a bit about Penny Marshall. Um, so could I hurry and switch it up? I was ready. I said, you know, I had my milk and Pepsi ready for everyone. I was going to talk about Penny Marshall. And I got bumped at the last second. The mic Aww. comes on. I'm ready to talk about milk and Pepsi. Shamil Shamazel. And I got bumped because Henry Winkler called. <laughs> I got bumped by Arthur Fonzarelli. <laughs> Come on. Do you get to put those on your CV? Yes. Um, and that's why I try to do ones that are more historical. But it also takes a long time. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it takes a long time to sit and do a live show with TMZ and you're not getting paid. So at some point, you know, I have to pay the bills. So, you know, I had to say goodbye to Harvey and Charles and focus on a podcast that people brought to my attention. <laughs> They're going to miss you. <laughs> <laughs> they just um, don't know it yet. How would you rank your car, your current top three Bravo liberties? Okay. And I should say, have they changed? The wording of this question makes me think that like... Well, because we talk about our Bravo liberties a lot with our guests. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like based on a storyline, you know, things can go up and down. Yeah. Yes. In fact, they have gone up and down. So I love Lisa Renna. We know I love Lisa Renna. Um, I often wondered why when I watched Days of Our Lives, why they didn't use the original Billy because she wasn't necessarily the original Billy. So I've loved Lisa Renna ever since I've had a transition into her taking on a new role as Billy back in the day on Days of Our Lives. Cynthia Bailey is my new boo uh, since meeting her at BravoCon. And I also say that I loved meeting uh, Eva Marcel, who actually dubbed me the Queen of Shade. <laughs> and so, you know, I Amazing. mean... Why? Why? Well... Max is going to act like he wasn't in the room. <laughs> One of the things that happened at BravoCon is they allowed audience members to ask questions. And so here it is, Real Housewives of Atlanta. I'm going to ask my question. And my question was really going to be about slavery and the Underground Railroad. I was going to start with a quip um, asking Cynthia if Leon was single because everyone wants to know if Leon's single if you're in this particular age group that remembers him. But how I phrased it, it came out differently, in, of course, when I phrased it. And I said, so, so I'm a woman of a particular age. And I should have <laughs> said, and I want to know if Leon's single. But I said, so I'm a woman of a particular age. So Cynthia. And so then, then the entire crowd thought I was shading Cynthia. And she almost came off the stage. I was like, that's not what I was asking. And it was quite a to-do. Wasn't it a to-do? <laughs> it was a bit of a to-do. The room erupted. Oh, it erupted. And then I was like, calm down. I got this. So you also have me in the back of the room managing the moderator who does this for a living but I pulled the I'm an older black woman card so it's like they weren't really going to interrupt me and so I had to tell the crowd what was going on like calm down I'm taking my time she's like but the we, we have a timeline so anyway we talked about Leon and then I just turned to Kenya and Portia because I didn't have time to ask the question the right way and said yeah I'm a scholar of slavery the two of all the two of you need to call me 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll save the rest of that for the, the BravoCon Bravo right. episode. So when I went to get pictures taken with Cynthia and Eva, it was just a love fest. So um, my third one, I'm putting those two together. My third one, and I can't explain it, people. I love Tyler Henry. I know Hollywood Medium didn't start on Bravo, but now it has reruns on Bravo. So I am taking him as one of my Bravo liberties. I love this kid. He doesn't drive. He doesn't really function in the real world. allegedly he doesn't know who he's reading, right? Every once in a while, by the end of the read, he'll realize, oh, my mom loves you. Let me go to the car and get her. Like, there are so many people that he interviews that allegedly he doesn't know who they are. But he did know who LaToya Jackson was. He did call his mother immediately so she could meet LaToya Jackson. But I just, I love this kid. And he gets a lot of criticism because is he a really real medium? I don't know. I just like him. Probably not, but. I like him. It works. For I was me. jaded by John Edwards when I was much younger. Oh wow! Yeah, so <laughs> that makes I, sense. Yeah, that I, makes sense. But when I was working as a bellman, uh, Jonathan Edwards came to do a reading at oh, the wow. hotel, and I was so put off by the entire like spectacle of it. And they were clearly like planting people or planting right. people to listen to people, and not a good guy. Tyler Henry comes off a lot more genuine to me. Than Jonathan Edwards. He's younger. Ever did. He's wait younger. Thir- he, wait has 30 years. Earnest, he has this earnest smile. Yeah. Yeah. Wait 30 years for the industry to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I have to go with Dorinda Medley because she likes to make things nice. That's it. That's the qualifier. We all need Dorinda Medley in our lives. So it's a little hard to get to just three. Yes. But valid points across the board. Yes. So I probably took all of our time just answering that question. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, okay. Usually you get to co-host, but you are our guest talent today. I am the talent. And this is very exciting. Um, because you went to Ghana in December. And I was hoping you could tell us about your trip Um, that you just got back from, but also your previous travels to Ghana and what these, and what these trips have meant within the context of African American and black freedom struggles worldwide. And how does your time in Ghana, um, and what does your time in Ghana mean to you, both as an academic and from a personal perspective? So Ghana is the only place that I've been to on the continent And I've been three times. This is my third time. People have said, do you want to go here or there? I do want to see, you know, I I do want to go to Egypt. I do want to go to South Africa. But I feel very comfortable in Ghana. Ghana has a relationship with the U.S. and particularly with African Americans going back to its independence. Um, When the first national president, Kwame Nkrumah, asked people like William um, E.B. Du Bois, Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, Maya Angelou, and other people, other African-Americans, to come and live in Ghana and help with the independence movement. So they're already kind of um, predisposed to see African-Americans in particular and say welcome. Their word for welcome is a quaba. You used to get off the plane, and there would be drummers drumming and people saying a quaba, a quaba when you arrived. Um, that since has changed with this last trip because they have, have a new, really stellar, modern airport um, that they're very proud about. So the first trip to Ghana was quick. It was a few days. I went with 
the Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora. We had a conference there, um, and it was great. I went with academics so we could have kind of the academic conversations. The second time I took a group of students from UCI, this school right here where we are, um, doing our historical work, I partnered with Ama Ray, the dance teacher, um, Cecilia Lynch in political science, Jennifer Fisher, also in dance. And we took a group of dance students to work with the Ghana Dance Ensemble um, at the University of Ghana Legon, and I was there for three weeks. That was 10 years ago. I was, was the first trip was 10 years ago or the second trip? The first trip was in 2009. Okay. The second trip was in 2010. And I was there for three weeks in 2010. So it was like this crash course in a year about Ghana. Um, and then I didn't go for 10 years because taking students to another country is exhausting. As much as it was wonderful, I should add we didn't get paid for that experience. And a liability. And a liability. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of paperwork that goes into there it. There was a lot of paperwork, but I mean, it was great, but it was exhausting. So fast forward to 2019. Uh, my friend is from Ghana, Dr. Shamara Kwachi at Georgia State University. Her father is from Ghana. I'm sorry. Dr. Shamara Kwachi at Georgia State University. Her father is from Ghana. She and her friend were thinking about going to Ghana. She asked me if I wanted to go. And I said, what? Let me think about this because I never plan to go to Ghana. I never have a concrete plan. A conference comes up or this dance exchange comes up. I didn't plan to go to Ghana at the end of the year. But I said, what? It is the year of return. I must go. What made 2019 the year of return? So 2019 is important because it commemorates the 400 years, 400 year mark of when Africans arrived in Virginia. 1619, tw they call them 20 odd Negroes, um, disembarked from a ship um, and were unclear if they were meant to be enslaved, right? We're unclear to, clear about that, um, but we still use that as a marker of when African people arrive. For people who don't know, Ghana used to be called the Gold Coast because of the vast amount of gold that it has, but also then during the period of the slave trade, it became the slave coast. And most, most people who were um, exported from um, Ghana, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm choosing my words, um, went through El either Elmina or Cape Coast Castle. So Ghana has also, in addition to having this Pan-African history and this Pan-African link with the U.S., they also have this issue of slavery, because many kingdoms actually served as interlocutors between kidnapping Africans and selling them to the Dutch and the British. This is where I put a footnote in and say, however, the slavery that happened in the United States and what becomes the Western world is different in kind and in totality than it is in Africa. In what becomes the new world, slavery is inheritable by race and it is permanent. You can never move out of it. So I, I do want to say that even though there was a history of kind of people being a servant for a minute in different African households, it chattel slavery just differed in, in every single way. Um, that being said, Ghana is still trying to reconcile kind of this past. And so the Taurus Bureau said, ah, right? That's my African, ah, great idea. Let's go ahead and um, invite people of the diaspora back. 
And so they had an upsurge of like maybe 1.5 million tourists came back this year. Wow. And just celebrated. At the end of the year, they had Afrocella, which is like our Coachella. They had a few different festivals um, commemorating this. I have opinions on how far the um, year of return kind of uh, trickled down to people on the ground. But I think for the people that went, there were tourist organizations. I just heard that someone took a tour group from Virginia. So they started at 1619 and they traveled to Ghana. And so they had these conversations, um, like really these cross cross transatlantic conversations um, about the slave trade and, and family history. So there are some great things that came out of the year of return. It's a long way of saying that's why I went. So it was, it sounds like it was just as personal as it was academic interest. Honestly, it was going to be my first, my first ever vacation since becoming a professor. Wow. It was actually a trip that wasn't related to a conference. Oh, I like second, second <laughs> in 20 years. But this was going to be, this was supposed to be a personal trip. This was supposed to be the year of return. Um, my, my, I'm, I was born on Sunday. Ghanaians believe in day names. So my Ghanaian name is Kosiwa. Kosiwa was coming home for the first time in 10 years. All my friends knew about it. It was supposed to be about me. But Ghana and Africa has this way of calling to people. Like it has a way of calling me. I never planned to go back. It just happens. So in the middle of this, then it occurs to us that we need, we should come up with a project. Still thought it would be personal. Then I got a call from someone, could you write an article on 1619? I said, no, but I can write one on the year of return. So we went with two projects in mind. We actually came out with three projects, and apparently I might be leading another study abroad that I didn't intend to leave. So <laughs> More paperwork. More paperwork. So, um, yes, it started as professional. I wanted to go and make it personal. It's, uh, at the point you're an academic, is there any line between personal and professional? No, we went on a vacation to Europe once, and, like, the whole time we were talking about writing something about it. I don't think it's... We couldn't stop taking notes. And we don't do European history at all. We kind of got kicked like, out of a European site because I couldn't keep my mouth shut about how they were portraying colonialism. Oh, you were just prattling on and on and on and on. I had, I had an argument with the tour guide in like a palace in Germany who she was like, well, rich people were just rich when they were asked about where the there ivory and gold of, came yeah, from. There was a lot of gold and ivory in the room, and there were a from lot like, of paintings of white people. From like 1840, 1850, yeah. and I like lost it. Oh, and it. there were some images of like indigenous people in like really subservient <sighs> positions. Yeah, it was awful. So yeah, I, I agree. Like I feel like I feel like you're right when it comes to trying to do personal things. Like there's always that kind of bleed over. There's bleed over, and like you, I get in trouble on, on tours. <laughs> Um, the first thing that happened in Ghana is we went to the Ashanti Palace in Kumasi. And the Ashanti were some of the biggest um, slave traders. And um, so there's this palace, that um, an old palace. There's the new palace that the king of Ashanti land lives in. But you go through a tour, and you see where Kwame Nkrumah sat. You see, like, this old refrigerator from the 60s, which was modern technology. You see things like um, uh, medals that were conferred on the nation. Like there's the um, uh, there's one from Ethiopia. There's one from Jamaica. I made notes of all of this. There's one from a, a 
Tubman in Liberia. And it was ironic because Harriet Tubman's movie had just come out but when I got to Ghana. So there's descendants with the name Tubman. We don't know if they're related to Harriet from Liberia. So there are all these medals that you can see were bestowed on onto the president um, and or king of, of Ashanti, president of Ghana and or a king of Ashanti land. So I was well behaved on this particular tour. I pulled the tour guide aside and I said, um, a beg, a beg. That means like, please, um, not so much begging, but please with respect. Um, would there be any year of return celebrations that the castle is involved in? And Ghanaians are so polite. Um, if you please, ma'am, that's a question for my supervisors. I said, no, I mean, we're at the end of the year of return and we're in Ashanti land. What is the castle doing? And of course, the man was very uncomfortable. I said, this is why I didn't ask this question in public, because I knew the answer. And I must say, I'm very disappointed that nothing is going on down here, not just in Kumasi, but particularly around the Ashanti um, experience. I, I, I felt some kind of way. Um, so I feel like that one was justified, but I, again, I didn't want to put him in a bad position. Normally I don't care if I put tour guides in a bad position, but I knew this answer and I knew it could be complicated. Yeah. The second, um, time where I, I don't feel like I showed out. I feel like I had a real question. When you go to Cape Coast Castle, there is a, um, there are graves of three people right when you come into the courtyard. Um, one was a missionary, one had ran the castle and one was his wife. Okay. So they have these random people, random British people and one, um, mixed race individual who's the minister. Anyway, they tell this story. This is like the third time I've heard this story. They tell the story of how the man died. The man died because his wife, um, thought that he was seeing someone else or wait, that's not the story. His wife thought he was seeing someone else and she died of a broken heart. That's the story. I said, is that the story? Everyone's getting ready to leave. And I do what um, Aisha Finch calls a millwardism. Is that the story, though? This story about love and romance, it is wonderful. But don't you think the story is closer related to slave resistance? And maybe she was poisoned because she was mistress of this slave castle? Like, are we sure it's about love? And he looked me dead in the eyes and said, these are the British archives. I said, oh. And the crowd was also largely African descended. And, and everyone said, oh, that explains it. <laughs> <laughs> um, turning slightly from Ghana to South Africa, um, the Row Ladies vacation there to South Africa in season four. Um, how did their trip compare to your travels to Ghana? And what can you say about the way that Bravo could benefit from changing their depiction of Africa? Well, I have not been a, it's not been a secret that I've been horrified to this day about the fight between Sheree and Marlo. Um, but as much as they showed their backside in the mother country, as much as they showed their backside in the mother country, we would add that housewives in general act like complete assholes when they go on any trip. So I'm, I'm willing to, you know, back off of, oh, what did you do to the continent? <laughs> I think the excitement about going to Africa and the excitement as being African-American people going to Africa, they had their outfits, they had their hair braided, they felt like they were coming home. So there is for African-Americans, some African-Americans, this sense that, 
even though you might not know where you're from in Africa, um, there is this sense that you're going to be welcomed more than you would other places. So I think that's accurate. Um, so the excitement about going to Africa, I think the connectivity going to Africa. I also think, though, that um, there is this moment that you realize that you're African-American in Africa, so it takes a minute to shake off the Americanness. Um, I think if we're going a deep dive, the sense of loss and the sense of dislocation um, for if, if if we want to quote Sadia Hartman, the act of losing your mother, losing the homeland um, to the transatlantic slave trade. So that's what I think they got right. Um, I have opinions. <laughs> <laughs> I have opinions um, about why they went to South Africa versus somewhere like Ghana. Because if they go to South Africa, it's easier to focus on apartheid. Right. It's easier to focus on race relations that had nothing to do with the United States. Allegedly. Wow. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah. Except on the arms. But who would know that besides a historian? Do you think that that has, do you think that it's a conscious decision to avoid um, going to um, um, the West Coast? Or do you think that it has more to do with just like production and like that's what happens i would say both and i would say both and i mean south africa makes a very uh it makes a better story about africa because yeah. you can see you know the city but you also can go on a safari right because isn't that what africa is um and i'll come back to that see this question is intermate hold on yeah i, I mean method to madness over here <laughs> right <laughs> So, I mean, what you get from South Africa is you get the safari, right? Um, when I go to Ghana, I go to Accra, and it's a major city, and it's very urban. And, you know, I'm not in the wilds of the jungle like they make you think it is on TV. I'm in the urban jungle, which has its own kind of problems. Don't get hit by a car. Uh, my friend has a motorcycle. I used to ride on the back of his motorcycle. My friends were like, were you crazy? Look at how, I mean, you could have died. So it's not a safari. Um, it doesn't fit the mold. I also think that if they know about the history of Ghana, and some people don't, so I won't take that as a, a, a foregone conclusion, people might not know how welcoming it is to African Americans, number one. And two, if you talk about Ghana, you do have to talk about the Pan-African struggle for black liberation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah. that might be something that Bravo doesn't want to tangle with in a particular way. But I also think that people just don't realize that Ghana, Nigeria, all these places are developed nations, right? And so you're not going to necessarily always go on safari. That, to me, sounds like it was more the issue. The, like, starkness of, like, the conceit of all these Bravo shows is that these are women of affluence. And there is, I would bet there was probably a discussion about, we don't want to have a background that's effectively poverty, mm -hmm. right? Like they go to the Caribbean, but they're not going to Haiti. Oh, like I agree. Going, yeah. I agree that. And we saw this with, um, um, was it Texacana or D Dallas where they talked about the dirty bathrooms? Oh, it was, oh. um, Dallas. Yeah, and, and that's really one of the only times I've actually seen footage, and we can, we've talked about this on our Twitter, footage about kind of this um, tourist porn, if you will, right? Yeah. right? 
Um, so I do think that, you know, South Africa, certain things are set apart because of apartheid yep. to make, keep things nice for certain segments of, of the society. I think the other part of this is that, you, you know, when we talk to students about the history of the transatlantic slave trade, right, they're usually, they're usually very, very shocked to see images of African kingdoms, you know, from previous centuries, or even to see these images of kingdoms at the same time as they're thinking about European development or things like that, and to see that African kingdoms were very wealthy and very, very wealthy. established. And there's still a lot of wealth there. I mean, Walter Rodney wrote a book in the 60s talking called um, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And it's true, I, I don't disagree, but there's still a lot of mineral wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is why, you know, the U.S. keeps a firm eye, most countries, right, keeps yeah. a firm eye on, on Africa. And certainly there is a, quite a lot of poverty, but, you know, I, I don't think we typically think about the wealth no. Or the development yeah. that is also in Africa, right? So we get this thought of the, of the safari and of poverty, right, is like the two main things that mm-hmm. are in Africa, but that misses the whole other aspect of, of the continent. Which is crazy when you think about like how big Africa is, like the vastness of Africa, just like size. But all no the Africas, right? Yeah, yeah all, like all, yeah. all and the, the di- And the diversity between the various countries. But no one would say that about Europe. Right, like no one would say, like, well, we can't go to anywhere no. in Europe, really, like anywhere. They went to the Eastern Bloc on Beverly Hills, didn't they? When they went to Germany or former Eastern Bloc, I feel right? Like they like, did. I think, I think, I think Africa makes it complicated, right? Yeah. Um, uh, we had Kumi Silva on, and she talked about how easy it is to go and film in the Caribbean because it's one step removed, no pun intended, from from Africa. I mean, I think Africa poses problems from a production standpoint not problems in general um i will just say i had a great time in ghana i feel Mm -hmm. so comfortable in ghana i just spoke to another african-american who also feels comfortable in ghana if it wouldn't break my mother's heart i would move to ghana for part of the year but it would absolutely break my mom's heart what about breaking mine and max's heart (laughs) oh well no i would fly in (laughs) oh no i would fly in um yeah forget your mom jessica (laughs) Let's get back to me. I feel like they're like you're like one of the people we see the most in our day to day life. It would be very weird. No, I would totally like I said, I would totally move to Ghana. We made the mistake or my friend's family made the mistake of showing us uh, my friend's father's property and it's still under construction. As soon as we FaceTimed him, I said I picked out my room because for years he's been saying come visit. I picked out my room. Um, Yeah, I, I would definitely live there part of the year. But maybe this is like a retirement dream. Maybe, because Orange County kind of is the retirement dream. You retire in this great house provided by the university, and then you have the beach. But, you know, I'm already living the great retirement dream, and I'm still working towards retirement. So why not? (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Um, I will say this. Let me say this about my hosts, because it goes to the incredible poverty. Um, We arrived. My friend's uncle picked us up. We then went to their house. Their... um, a lady named Rita uh, served us food, jollof rice and chicken. And I didn't realize that Rita was going to be making three meals a day for us. And sometimes not even three. Sometimes there was a morning breakfast for myself and then a later breakfast for my friends that we called the Sleeping Beauties. So um, 
I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I was blown away and I'm, you know, I'm not affluent here, but I also wouldn't have someone. Oh my God, that would be great if I had someone making three meals for me. <laughs> I mean, but it's just, I, it's just to show the different class structures that are embedded, right? Right. There's a group of, um, there's just class structures in a way that though they're there, it's not necessarily the same as the U.S. And I feel like we typically think of Africa as, you know, Africa as a country, which is so problematic, right? Because right. people refer to Africa. Right, like than, what is Africa? And like, I feel like so many people struggle to name, you know, even three three different countries in Africa, right? right? But then they want to think about Africa as being a con- like a continent of a bunch of animals and then a lot of poor people. Right. Right. So almost like this erasure of the potential for erasure of like the civilization that is there. Right. Period. Was there, is there, will be there. Except Egypt. And then everyone forgets that Egypt's part of Africa. Why do people do that? Okay. I know why they do that. The Western mind. I know why they do that. Um, When I was getting ready for this trip, you know, inevitably people are going to say, Oh, what are you going to do in Africa? By the time I got to London, I linked up with my friend. I said, if I get one more question about what we're going to do in Africa. She's like, yeah, because they think we're going to do a safari. I said, right. They don't know we're going to sit on your aunt and uncle's couch, eat plantain, and, you know, sit under the air conditioning. I mean. (laughs) There was drama on the road trip to South Africa over what it would have been like if Kim had attended the trip. In particular, the lady stated that Kim would participate in the service component of the trip, specifically uh, visiting an orphanage. Can you contextualize this fight and maybe expand on how this vacation in particular would have been different by Kim's presence? Or lack of presence, really. Mm -hmm. So we know that Kim did not go on this trip because she couldn't be away from her boys, because she was pregnant, because, um, you know, any reason. Um, Croy has a good looking butt. I mean, any reason she decided not to go on this trip. Um, but I believe it was because she was pregnant. Um, question mark. I believe that's right. So Kim didn't go on the trip at all. So it was just African descended women on this trip. Mm -hmm. And so they were talking about what it would be like if Kim had come on the trip. And one of them said, I don't think she would have done any of this. I believe it was Cynthia that said that, but the, the pinnacle of the conversation is either Kim or Candy. One, uh, either Candy or Cynthia said something about Kim would definitely not have gone to the orphanage. Like I couldn't even see her. Like, do you think Kim would be there holding all those black children? And that is what Sheree remembered, and that is what Sheree came back with. The bone collector. Exactly. So it wasn't that Kim didn't come anyway because she doesn't travel with us anymore because she's with Croy. It wasn't about, you know, would, would she even do a service project? Come on now. It became about would she hold black babies? And so, of course, she's, it, when it came back to Kim, she's like, I am not racist. Of course I would hold black babies. But even in this entire fight, just the notion that we're going to go to an orphanage and what we get out of that is would someone want to be pictured holding black babies? What did you do at the orphanage? Did you bring clothes? Did you bring diapers? Um, did you talk about health care? Like, what did you do besides come away with how this are fight? The babies, your props. <laughs> Basically, yeah. that's how I felt. I thought, Ugh, like, is this another kind of poor Africa ad, a di- disaster porn? But it came about, came about uh, that 
The fight became about how Kim wasn't racist. The larger conversation is how does a trip with white people change for make the how would a how would an interracial trip change change the outcome for for in this case a white American and black Americans like does having the presence of a white person change the dynamics on a largely black trip does having the presence of a black person on a largely white trip change the dynamics I have to say yes by the way did you guys get to go to the graveyard in New York together no not together i go every time but I didn't you know there. i've never been i've never been to that and i've never been to the united nations memorial i know it was such a fast trip and it was freezing yeah. so i wasn't sure if you guys went oh well go. i upped it nancy because i part of my dissertation i'm looking at um weather and the way that weather has been used to control people oh yeah that is something that i was toying with so it's okay. november you had to go see what it felt like. And I I got off. I didn't do the full walk because that would have been a long walk. But I walked a few miles in like a shirt and pants and shoes no in New jacket, York. No jacket, right? No jacket. Shake it. It was, that was very cold. I commemorate that. I think yeah. that, that, that I, I applaud you on that. That's good historian work. Yeah. That was. Walk the ground. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, I try to go every it feels weird not to honestly there's some places and i know your work is there in new york so it makes sense yeah there's some places and my friends have even told me this that i need to go where it's um literally i can't feel the presence of the enslaved because i go to maryland and virginia and it's always on my mind Mm -hmm. i'm in ghana and all i can see is like back two or three hundred years yeah so i made a conscious decision in some ways or maybe not not to go to these places in new york but i still need to but every time I get there, there isn't enough time. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that's the universe or just my need to keep something intact. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like you also have to be at a in a space to be ready to hold that. Yes, emotionally, you have mm-hmm. to be ready in a space to hold that. Because Max, I mean, inevitably, like always, goes through the graveyard, and he's like an emotional mess. Oh, yeah. It was actually closed when I went, so I could only stand outside. You could still see the graves because they have mounds and stuff, but, like, I couldn't actually go into the the structure like normal. But, yeah. You know, but it take, I think but it, yeah. you, you, if you're not in a space to hold those emotions, like, I don't know how one. No, you have to. Right, but I feel like, yeah. I feel like so many people just, like, walk over you know, walk around or walk over through or whatever and have like no idea. Right. But when you know, it it has a much different. When you know, it has a different meaning. I do believe that there's still unsettled spirits. So people are calling back. Um, And I think this is how the great historians are born, that people are calling back from the past. They want to have their stories told. But when you look at something like slavery it's so fraught with trauma. Yeah. That and. Uh, you can be traumatized as well. And I spoke about this in my book. I spoke about how um, for people who do slavery, sometimes it has a physical impact on their body. And so you just need space away from it. Yeah. Which is the luxury of this century, right? This is a luxury. Right. Yes. Um, Yeah, for sure. White people get the privilege of time, like fantasizing about time travel. No one else gets Yeah, that it didn't privilege. really work well for black people yeah. in the past. So, um, okay. Why don't we lighten it up and do our Please. Funko party? <laughs> Please. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, so now it's time for our Bonko Party game break. Okay, and today we're going to play a game that I like to call Around the World. So I actually looked up the top cities um, for tourism based on 2018 arrivals and 2019 estimates put out in December of 2019. Um, These are CNN stats. So I'm going to throw out... 10 cities and uh you and jessica are max and jessica jessica max the panel our our tiny panel today is going to try to put them in the correct order from most visited to least visited in the top 10 okay so if you have your pens ready i'll give you the cities so most visited is number one yes okay and I will say a lot of these places, housewives have traveled to on various vacations or even live in. So uh, connections there. Okay. You ready for your list? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, New York City. Bangkok. Istanbul. Dubai. Hong Kong. These are hard. London. Kuala Lumpur. It's in Malaysia. And then we have Macau, Paris, and Singapore. So I'll give you some time to put them in the order that you think they go in from 1 to 10, 1 being most tourist arrivals. And some of these are very close. Actually, a lot of them are within just a couple thousand Casey made officially the hardest game. <laughs> it was it was supposed to be that it didn't test trivia, but that it also had housewife overlap. I thought about doing bonus points for like which franchise, like you know, franchise vacation season, but then I was like, oh no, that's just it's going to be too much for the game. I will say, interestingly, there were. Three different travel destinations, major cities within Thailand that made the top 20. I have no idea. Can we agree? Can we rank them together? Yeah. Okay. Max. If I went through my process of how I'm narrowing this down, (laughs) it's like I thought on a list this one time I (laughs) saw that Paris was like Fourth. <laughs> so what, uh, you, you guys have a list? Okay. Uh, Jessica and Max, what did you get for number one? <laughs> I, just, I didn't know if this was going to be hard or easy. Yeah, this is super hard. This should have been five. <laughs> we should have picked the top five. For one, I, for one, I have, because I made two lists, I have either Singapore or Hong Kong. I put Hong Kong as my number one. Hong Kong was number one. You know how I narrowed this down? This is how terrible I am. I was like, well, there's a lot of people in Asia and they have a Disneyland. (laughs) That was about it. (laughs) I did not know that. I did know they have a Disneyland because someone brought me a souvenir from Disneyland. Okay, so one. We got one. We got one. We got one. What'd you guys get from number two? I got Bangkok. Singapore. Bangkok was number two. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Okay, number three. Paris. Paris. It was London. Ooh. Well, on my original list, it was London, but now we're going on this list. <laughs> Four. New York. Istanbul. Macau. Really? Yeah. Makes sense. I was such an American with that answer. What? New York has to be on there. Okay, five. New York. London. Singapore. Dang it, man. I really found this list interesting, right? Because it's much less Eurocentric. That's what I was also thinking as we were doing this. If like, because like my immediate go-tos are like, I know Paris, I know London, I know New York. But most of the world is not going to these places. My original go-to was, hmm, how do we train people in our profession? Don't look for the obvious. Exactly. <laughs> Number six. I had Dubai. Kuala Lumpur. You were very close, Jessica. Um, Paris is number six. Dubai was seven. Mm. I got Dubai. Wow. And my logic was it would have been higher, but then I was like, who is going out to the desert that far? Who that can afford to go there that too. in mass? I mean, to put it in perspective, Paris had about 19 million visitors in 2019. Dubai had... 16.3 million. Yeah, but Dubai is hot yeah. in the desert. I know Paris is hot. I mean, but it was. Like, Paris yeah, was melting this summer. I know. Yeah. Okay, eight. I had London. I had Istanbul. It was New York. Now, that's one for you Americans. Mm-hmm. That showed us. Yeah. I had Singapore for nine. I had Malaysia. Nine was um, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Oh, so technically, I, got I think you. you got it. Yeah. Oh, you got two also. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have a tie. Woo. Well, I'm going to lose this last point. <laughs> Congratulations. And ten was. I had Macau, but the I had Macau, but we already. Determined that was not. 10. It was Istanbul. Oh, it was nine on my other list. But it's interesting because I'm not sure. I mean, because they did it with the combination of the 2018 arrivals and the 2019 arrival projection. So it was very close to Kuala Lumpur. So it was off by only about. Less than 700,000 in terms of visitors. So that one was really close between 9 and 10. And it was really close between New York and Malaysia. Because that was off only by about 60,000. I feel like the game's much more fun when we have a guest. <laughs> I feel like it you pulled out the hardest yeah. stuff for us. I was trying to make it easy. Yeah, This might actually just be a very short episode. <laughs> Which is fine. Yeah. Might be like the 30 minute in and out. It was fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If anything, I think the game is great to show how people are actually traveling in the world. I mean, I would use it in world history. That's a great idea. Yeah. I don't teach world history, but I would use it. I mean, and to show that, you know, New York's not even in the top five. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like it's great. It, right? it really, I think it really changes the way that you think about where people go. So, anyway. Let's get back to these questions. So, Jessica. Yes. You are a scholar of slavery, and you 
write about, constantly think about roots to freedom, particularly as it relates to African-American and black women's history. So can you tell us a bit about what this looks like in practice in the archive? And maybe you can give us a glimpse into the research you did for your first book, Finding Charity's Folk. Well, it's interesting because Finding Charity's Folk also has a link to Ghana. Um, I don't have scientific proof that um, this Bonds woman from Annapolis um, was probably from Ghana, but I did uh, present on charity folks in Ghana, and it just resonated with my spirit. Um, so the book itself looks at African-American women or African-descended women right after the American Revolution up to about 1830 and how they used the court system to advocate for freedom for themselves. I mean, basically, it's a routes to freedom book. So I talk about you know, you can't measure freedom, but I talk about how reproduction was not necessarily uh, a site for freedom, but could it be a site for resistance? I speak about uh, African-American women who brought petitions against their owners so that they could um, sue for their freedom. And I talk about people like charity folks who bought their way out of um, out of slavery. So charity folks is a woman that I discovered by happenstance in the archive I discovered her when I was doing dissertation research on my dissertation that was supposed to be on Baltimore, Maryland. And Charity Folks was an enslaved woman in Annapolis, Maryland. I had a freedom certificate that freed her, her, her children, and then her grandchildren, and I had one other document. And for years, those were the only documents I had um, until I decided to change my angle of how I was looking at this book. I was looking at this book as a road to tenure, or I was looking at it as me, I decided to step aside and say, okay, what story is Charity Folks trying to tell? And one of the things that happened is I realized that I had bits and pieces of her story, but because there wasn't a written record, um, you know, I didn't know how the story fit together. I didn't really realize that I had bits of her stories until I spoke to a local genealogist through oral tradition told me, that Charity was um, enslaved by the Ridout or the Rideout family, that her, she was, um, when she was freed, she was actually given a house by the Rideouts a few blocks away. So that's a long way of saying that when you go into the archive, you never know what you're going to find. Um, and I started a project on Baltimore. It ended up being a project on a woman in Annapolis, um, two very different locales. But when you're doing black women's history in particular, we know it's so difficult because the records weren't meant to include black women, right? So we have my book, we have Marissa Fuentes, we have Jennifer Morgan. There's a few people that are talking about how within the margins of the archive we can learn more about black women's history. One of the great pieces of advice that Jennifer Morgan gave me was don't talk about how there's an absence. Talk about what the absence can tell us about certain things. So if there's an absence of black women's records, it's because were they valued? Were they not valued? Where do they show up? And that's how you're going to see how society um, kind of ordered, um, literally ordered people's places in society. Like, where do they show up in the archive? So that's a long way of saying I've always been interested in routes of freedom. I've always been interested in black kind of independence movements and I've always, I don't know why, been dedicated to the hard work of finding things in the archive that aren't supposed to be there. You've used Bravo for a long time to show why history is important 
Can you dig into your own teaching and research to break down a few moments in particular that stand out in the Bravo canon for discussing African-American history? We've talked already about Giselle and the RHOP trip to the Whitney Plantation, but can you maybe expand at all on this moment, along with Portia and the Underground Railroad and Kenya's Gone with the Wind Fabulous? Well, I think Bravo can help us better understand not just my work, but many people's work, because there are storylines that intersect with kind of our day-to-day lives. So, for example, there's been quite a few storylines about domestic violence on the housewives. And I think that we can use that as a moment to not just talk about what signs of domestic violence are, but provide a moment where if students are suffering, they might out themselves and, you know, you can point them towards a support mechanism. That that kind of conversation really might save someone's life. Um, we have a podcast that is coming up where we have an incredible conversation about what this would look like in action, kind of the interaction between Bravo and domestic violence. I mean, obviously you can look at Bravo, use Bravo in ways that demonstrate why history is important. Um, like when people go to Europe, why do they only go to Europe? What stories do we get from this? Um, we can talk about how certain things aren't contextualized but I think in general, there's probably a Bravo clip or a reality clip for almost anything you want to bring up in the classroom. It's just how you pitch it. Well, that's really interesting, too, right? Because if we think back to Giselle and the Potomac trip to Whitney Plantation, right, they're making a very specific decision to go to New Orleans and to visit this plantation rather than do like a European trip. Right. Right. And, you know, these vacation decisions for housewife for housewives in Potomac are going to look potentially really really different right or even the desire for the Roa woman to go to South Africa right that's not the place where Beverly Hills is going right right or the fact that married to medicine is going places um within the Caribbean but they're going as medical missionaries right well, I think that, you know, this goes back to what Andy said and what Max has reminded us about, that Andy says that each each franchise has its own personality. And so I would it doesn't surprise me that a group of people from Potomac, Maryland, or really Washington, D.C., went somewhere like New Orleans or the Whitney Plantation that's tied to all this rich history. Uh, that, didn't, that didn't surprise me. Um, what surprised me was to know that Giselle had a link there, mm-hmm. which was even more incredible. But that really didn't surprise me. Um, or even that, you know, the Roa women are also doing stuff like engaging with the history of the Underground Railroad as as like a group um, event, right? Like a group thing, right? Where, but we where don't, they we went, don't, they but we don't, just, but we don't see those kinds of history intersecting with political moments in some of these other franchises. Yeah, I think there's a different kind of weight and probably that's just my angle of vision mm-hmm. because of my specialty. Other people might watch it and not even think certain things. But I do know that if we go back to Roa, when someone referred to Sweetie as Kim's slave, did Nini refer to yeah, I think Sweetie it was as Kim's slave? Not cool. That did not go over well. Um, so problematic on so many levels. So there was a little bit of a conversation you could have. But unfortunately, with some of these clips that kind of 
lead towards stereotypes, you actually run the risk, if you're not careful, of right. reinforcing some things. So you have to really have context. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I start most of my classes with, um, instead of TMZ, I start with a JMZ moment um, in my undergrads classes where I talk about what's going on in celebrity gossip or reality TV to link it to whatever is happening that particular day. This, right. this past quarter, I taught domestic violence. This quarter, I'm talking about slave rebellions. Not really appropriate in those two particular classes, but in my fun classes, that's how I start. So, continuing <clears throat> this discussion of domestic violence, your new research project is looking at domestic violence during Reconstruction. What can you say about the characters and storylines on Bravo um, as it resonates with these long histories and the work that you're doing now? And how do you get from Charity Folk to this new project? Especially because you've gone from early America right, to, to the late 19th century. One of it is about sources. I wrote a book basically with zero sources. And I had to carve the methodology for myself. That took a long time for a very small book. Mm-hmm. But I've always wanted to write a book on black women domestic violence um, based on some of my own experiences, but I don't want to talk about my own experience. So what I'd like to do is see how women who, for the first 50 years where they have legal control of their body, what do they do? And some of the, some of the conversations or the, what I'm stumbling over is resonant today. If you look particularly at African-American women and men who have had problems with police, have problems with the state. What does it mean if you're in a domestic violence situation and you call the police on your significant other, right? Mm -hmm. Some people don't, particularly African-American women. So what does it mean after the Civil War where these women are um, starting for the first time to exercise their rights and they actually are bringing cases to the federal government, to the Freedmen's Bureau, so if you think about the Freedmen's Bureau as police, what is motivating? What was so terrible about their lives that they would actually go to essentially the enemy, right, and try to seek protection? So I'm interested in kind of the legal language they use. I'm interested in kind of, in some ways, a survivor mentality, a survivor culture, because I think ultimately anyone who came through slavery is a survivor, but this was just kind of a way for me to... Um, get at some of the questions that I want to really speak about. And the, the data is there. Unlike the first time where I said, oh, let me be, you know, this pioneer and just go and try to look in the margins. This time I said, oh, it's right in front of us. It's right in documents that come from the Freedmen's Bureau that is uh, available in the National Archives that no one has really looked at. People have looked at black people building banks after um, Reconstruction or during Reconstruction. They've looked at labor disputes, but no one has really looked at the way in which the court becomes a vehicle for black women to protest their own rights, for for rights, right? Because we know at the same time um, women in general in the U.S. are still determined to get the vote. And we know with the 15th Amendment, that doesn't happen. It allows all men to vote. It allows all men to vote, particularly black men, are put above white women, right? And so this splits the feminist movement. But I also maintain there's also a conversation that was going on that black women are trying to work this out for the first time legally. 
what it means, what it means if they end up in a patriarchal household, what it means if they actually might be the perpetrators of violence. All of it. It's all messy. Um, and I really wanted to follow the sources this time instead of having to creatively make, you know, make connections. Can you expand a little bit more on why an African-American free woman after the Civil War would not want to go necessarily to an official from the Freedmen's Bureau to report, like, what sort of constraints would she might feel as a result of... Well, let us remember it was the American government that allowed people to remain enslaved. Mm -hmm. So the American government is only a friend at this particular moment, right? Um, Let's also think about the fact that, you know, they're going to talk to a white official. You don't know how it's going to end. Black people don't have a great track record going to talk to white people in powerful places in the 19th century. Um, You also have to realize that I came across the story of one woman where she brought her complaint and the officer, the court officer, didn't believe her. The court officer was really not sympathetic because she ended up going back with her husband, you know, um, to diffuse the situation. So I think in many ways their situation isn't any different than what Mm. women think about today. Um, You know, you people think twice before in some communities before they call the police. Well, and one of the things that we've seen talked about on Bravo is how many times it takes somebody to leave a domestic violence, um, a recurring domestic violence situation. And so not only is it difficult to leave for so many different reasons, um, but there there can, you know, between barriers of leaving and, and you know, issues of people believing or and not believing the abuse. And so in some ways, I feel like the history you're writing now um, is also a story of, of things that stay the same. Oh, absolutely. There's change over time in terms of we move forward into different eras, but there's not necessarily change over time, this fundamental problem with intimate violence. Yeah. And, you know, and so far it's men are the aggressors. Um, I found only one inter- instance where the woman was a, an aggressor. I'm interested in what would happen if we kind of queer this space. Mm-hmm. What happens if there were, would have been space for people to talk about same-sex relationships, which we wouldn't necessarily get in the government documents because, of course, the government didn't want to hear that. But I'm just wondering what it means when we start looking deeper at these, at these records. I'm really interested to see how this book works with uh, Bound in Wedlock. You know, someone just actually told me, of course, that I have to – interact with band wedlock i know that um but some tara hunters tara Tara citing black woman (laughs) tara hunters very important award award award-winning book um bound in wedlock about african-american marriages um she she's she does go into some detail i'm using kind of a different set of records and in some ways i might be making my job harder than it needs to be because I'm also a social historian, so I need to know what's happening to every single person at the same time. There's millions of Freedmen's Bureau records. So I need to find a way to kind of rein it in. But it is going to be interesting how, how, how it interacts. Well, and how absolutely different from being in a space where it's almost impossible to find black women in the archive to all of a sudden it's so documented. 
Well, this is what uh, Leslie Rowland at the University of Maryland um, Freedmen's Bureau Project said to me when I emailed her. I said, I kind of get a sense there might be some of this in the documents. Um, they have a collection of uh, Freedmen's Bureau papers. I sense there might be some of this in the documents, but I'm not sure. And she said, the good news is for you, there are going to be so many documents. It's going to be like completely opposite from your first book. She said, the bad news is, from a human perspective, there's so many of these documents. So just from a human perspective of, of people going through traumatic situations, we have record of it. So, but it is, it's a completely different uh, feeling writing this book. I almost feel guilty because I see it coming together so quickly. <laughs> My first book was so hard. Like I went years when I didn't even write anything, but this one is coming together very quickly. It'll probably be actually two, two books, one more popular and one more, you know, rigorously, uh, rigorous in social history. Um, so it can dialogue with Tara Hunter's mm -hmm. book. So with that. Let's go to our Bravo News update. So this just in. MJ from Shaws of Sunset and Jeff Lewis are friends. I don't know if that's news or not, but they went to lunch last week. And at lunch, MJ was like, okay, Jeff Lewis, why have you not reached out and apologized to Jenny Poulos yet? Like, this has been a lifelong Ooh. friend. Ooh. This is T. What are you doing? Ooh. And Jeff Lewis um, reached out to Jenny after this lunch with Mercedes. Mercedes, the great uniter. Yes. Yes. That she was like, Jeff, I don't care what happened. Like, you can't, like, throw out this friendship and, like, play, play her dirty be just because, right? Like, you, like, what is happening? And so Jeff reflected after his luncheon with MJ and said that he had to wait until he felt truly sorry <laughs> to <laughs> approach Jenny. And that with reflection, he uh, realized that he uh, definitely had a big part to play. And he says that he sent her a text message Um asking if she'd be willing to meet with him and apologizing for his part in their falling out. He says he's not expecting any kind of apology from Jenny. And oh, that's so kind of him. And that if she ever apologizes, he wants that to be in her own time, but that he does not require an apology. What a guy. He's so narcissistic. What a guy. Give it up for him. Uh, <laughs> in the meantime, Jeff reunited with Zoila this last fall in oh, October nice. so for Monroe's third birthday. So he rehired. No, like, she's retired, but he oh, did okay. hire Zoila's sister. Well, I was going to say, what him. does Ugh. he need? That was my question. What Ugh. does he need? <laughs> Zoila's sister now works for Jeff. All right. So that's our first Bravo news. Wow. But that's really new. impressed by Mercedes. Very impressed. Yeah, good for her. I hope that means there's hope for her and Reza. Maybe I not, but I read something that there is some communication. But she should, if um, if Jeff Lewis's show comes back, which I'm blanking on the name, what was it called? Uh, uh, flipping flipping out. out. And of course, it might also be that it took a year for him to reach out to Jenny. You know, because, because they haven't renewed the contract. Yeah, <laughs> and now he's like, well, maybe if we make up, we can get another season. Um, I don't know. That's I me mean, being that's cynical. If that's the case, though, Mercedes should really get an executive producer credit. <laughs> she really should. <laughs> Get some of that flipping out money. Yeah. So second story. No, no. 
uh, you know, Teresa's uh, dad. Oh, Teresa, okay, dad. Teresa and Joe's dad. No, no. Um, this last se- the, in this current season of Ronge, um, we see him at Easter just open the refrigerator door and start drinking hot sauce, and he puts the hot sauce back. But he like straight drinks hot sauce and it's like an everyday thing for him. So like you see that there's like a variety of hot sauces. Oh, in it's the good fridge. for digestion. Well, apparently Melissa Gorga says he's always done this and he does it because he says it helps kill disease. And he's in and out of the hospital all the time. And so he believes that this hot sauce drinking straight out the fridge helps him stay healthy. It's a little bit. My big fat Greek wedding with the Windex. Oh, totally. Totally. But like moral of the story, if you ever go to the Gorgas or Judici household and you see hot sauce, unless you brought it yourself and have not let it out of your sight, (laughs) you do not add hot sauce. (laughs) Because he just straight. I mean, I mean, those are his. Those are his. Period. I'm assuming I wouldn't trust any of them. They are so his. He doesn't even have to write his name on them. But you know what? At least, at least, it's something he does consistently. He believes in this. Is like uh, it's keeping me healthy. Right. I mean, hot peppers are good for inflammation and stuff. Like if you eat um, jalapenos, I should say, historians and housewives is not providing medical advice right now oh, in any way, no. shape, or form. Heavens no. Consult a doctor. However, I have read. In multiple peer-reviewed articles about, like, uh, hot peppers and being good for inflammation and immunization. So he's not well, totally wrong. he has weak wrong. lungs, so he gets, like, kind of chronic pneumonia. And so he just is thinking that it's going to kill his... I mean, his that's not going to happen. But it is good for, like, maintaining health, I would say. I mean, it's not going to hurt. So this last news story... Typically, we talk so much about Bravo news, but every once in a while, there's like major shade and tea within the historian's profession. Oh, so I figured I figured that today, since we were talking, uh, you know, rather adjacently about 1619 and Ghana being the year of return, also connected to 1619, I thought maybe um, we could collectively contextualize the 1619 project and the debate, and maybe we could. Say something about oh, that. That's a lot of tea. Dr. J. Mill. That's a lot of tea that's been aired on Twitter. <laughs> I right. mean, if anybody is like, like historians can get really down and dirty. Social media has been exploding for months. So let's talk about the 1619 Project. I just assigned it, not just the project, but the historian debate to my class last week. So we talked about the project. The project was... Um, Organized by Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, a, MacArthur, a MacArthur fellow, mind you. Um, she asked the New York Times Magazine to write to allow her a spread talking about slavery. And she did ask a few historians to consult, but she wanted to show how slavery also affects us today. So there were stories by like uh, Khalil Muhammad who talked about sugar and how sugar um, sugar in the, in the colonies and sugar then what it is doing to our diets. Someone else talked about segregation leads to traffic problems in Atlanta. So I will say from my standpoint that what it did is it got many just Americans that wouldn't normally be te- talking about slavery and the mm-hmm. interactions between the past and the present. It, it, it got people talking. So I think it's an important project. Are there flaws? Yes. Are there flaws to the extent of uh, what the historians are saying? Yikes. 
So yeah. I think one one thing, so what has happened now is then the old guard historians, old guard, like. And when you mean like the, 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 the yikes about what the historians are saying, you mean the way that they're attacking each other. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not, not what's like actually in the the project because what's in the project is is not necessarily what it's being attacked for right it's being attacked for leaving out things it's being attacked more so than anything and i don't know this is my news as of three days ago you can tell me what the twitter say now by doing the 1619 project uh hannah jones is establishing that the american timeline begins really not in 1776 the conversation about freedom and independence Mm -hmm. begins in 1619 Ooh, she's That's drawn a, some fire. Mm-hmm. She has. Um, but the but the old guard has definitely gotten very upset. Very big names in the field. I named Gordon Wood already. He's been very public about this, giving interviews on this. Um, some other. James people. McPherson, right? James McPherson. I think Sean Malentz as well. Um, I think. Um, yes. 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 <laughs> um. Yeah, I sort of don't quite understand. I mean, I under... Let me take that back. I don't understand the furor over it because that argument has already been made by historians. It's not really a new argument at this point. Like Gerald Horn wrote an entire book about this. argument at all. (laughs) About, like, the counter-revolution of 1776. Yes. And then we need to, like, rethink what American independence looks like Mm -hmm. for... Millions of people of African descent. Um, yeah, the big thing somebody pointed out to me, um, and then once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. The big thing, you know what? I'm going to say this. I really appreciate the 1619 Project. I think it's, like, really important that we, like, create this timeline so that people recognize that, like... Create it in a popular way. In a popular way for a public audience. Yeah, I think that... You know, there's very few times um, when the public is keen in on really critical dates in American history and in, like, particularly, like, histories of slavery. Not just the dates, but the debates. Yeah, and the debates. Um, It would have been nice, however, if there was an actual early Americanist who wrote an article, a colonial American historian of you know who could have added some nuance um particularly since um dinarimi berry came out with with callie gross Uh came out with the black woman's history of the united states there could have been i think a little bit more of a bridge towards historians since this is sort of like our ballywick like Like early early american historian yeah and it wouldn't have been hard because you know Jennifer Morgan's in New York. Exactly. Oh, it wouldn't have been hard. Jennifer Morgan's in New York. There's so many people. Um, but I did, I will say that I assigned um, Hannah Jones's actual essay. And though she did not consult necessarily, historians aren't necessarily writing a piece. Some of the things she talked about, she has a piece on democracy and the challenges of democracy and what 1619 represents and what it meant for her growing up, watching her father who had been in the military kind of honor the U.S. flag. Like, where does the story of African-American begin? When does the story of American begin? So it's very complicated. Yeah. I will, sorry, I will say that the Karen Wolf from the Omohondro Institute had an amazing thread on Twitter. She did. Where she, where she, 
so wonderfully mentioned all of the really important pieces of this project, mm-hmm. right? Down to the methodological um, things that you can take from this project into the classroom, ways of thinking differently with students and about the writing. Um, and I think that she did such a talented job at supporting the project, criticizing the criticizers, mm-hmm. you know, and, and offering that... Um, piece on um well you know the expansive work on early america but also the fact that um dispossession and colonization is also another big piece Mm -hmm. of this story that we don't really see here but is definitely going on at the same time yeah but karen wolf is amazing omohondro institute shout out she did a very exceptional job at like walking the line between like legitimate criticism about the project and also like defending its um, strengths as well as its sort of like mission statement of what it's trying to do. I thought and attacking its attackers. Yeah. Yeah. That is why she's Karen Wolf. Yeah. 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 So shout out, you know, she's one of my favorite historians. Mm. Well, and the Amahandra Institute really, really important institution for our early early america history the institution a lot of ways yeah so that's our bravo news and your historian's tea today so jessica yes tell us what's next for you what do you want people to know how can they get a hold of you if they want to learn more well, you know, I'm I'm actually a host of a podcast. Um, I don't know if you've heard about it, Historians on Housewives. We are almost to the end of our first season. We will be going into our second season, recording our second season very soon in June. Um, I'm also working on this book on domestic violence, as, as I said. And um, going back to the beginning, I believe I might be taking another study abroad trip to Ghana, you can reach me at my email address, M-I-L-L-W-A-R-D at UCI.edu, or you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. J. Mill. And obviously, you can give us any kind of comments via our Historians on Housewives page. Thank you so much for for letting us grill you today. I do feel grilled. A little well done. Is this this is what it feels like? We might need to change our approach. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us on another episode of Historians on Housewives. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com where you can propose your own episode topic, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. And don't forget that you can like and review the podcast on your podcast platform. Thank you, Jessica Millward. This show was brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Christina Hinkle, Christina Gamberpour, Jed Merlaski, Pete Murray, Yvonne Ballardas, Cody Baker, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Laura Loper, Kim Bettendorf, and Louis Asio de Dios. And remember, scholars do bravo too. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.